Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Does God still heal people today like He did in biblical times? And how should we respond whenever we're confronted with illness in our life or the life of somebody we care about? We're going to answer those questions as we look at Acts chapter 3. Turn there as we talk about what I call purpose-driven healing. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. No one manages to escape this life without injury or illness. Maybe someone you love or maybe even yourself could be fighting a physical battle. Health issues affect all of us. Today on Pathway to Victory... Dr. Robert Jeffress considers whether God still answers petitions for healing. Now here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Today in America, Christians are beginning to experience the kind of persecution that has beset other countries around the world. It's an uneasy feeling. I mean, if you declare yourself to be a Christ follower, then you've become a target of ridicule, if not outright alienation. If you have any doubts, try stating your views on traditional marriage, or say something about biological gender, and you'll be typecast as a bigot. This month on Pathway to Victory, I've chosen to guide you in a teaching series called Unstoppable Power. It's based on the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 12. In this study, we're gaining inspiration from first-century Christians because their love for Jesus fueled their courage. They were completely unstoppable, and you can be as well. I've written a book for this series, and you're invited to request your copy when you give a generous gift toward the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge that's active right now. By giving a gift today, you're entitled to request my book, but that's not all. Any amount you give between now and July 4th will be automatically matched and doubled in size because of the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. So, when we come to the close of today's program, be ready to jot down our contact information. You can give us a call, go online to ptv.org, or write a letter if you prefer. When you give, I'll make sure you receive a copy of my brand new book, Unstoppable Power, while at the same time doubling the impact of your gift as well. Now, let's resume the message I started on yesterday's program. In this next study, we're looking at an amazing sequence of miracles that are recorded in Acts chapter 3. I titled today's message, Purpose Driven Healing. What I want you to notice in Acts 3, it's divided neatly into two parts. First of all, the miracle performed by Peter, the healing miracle, and the message preached by Peter. The miracle was just the setup for the message. Now, let's look at this. Verse 2, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when this beggar saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Look at what happened in verses six to eight. Peter answered the beggar and said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, 
He raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. How did the people react to this a miracle, they were amazed indeed. Look at verse nine. All the people saw him walking and praising God and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. Verse 11, while he, the lame man, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. The crowd was building. They were running toward Peter. And so what did Peter do? This miracle was not an end unto itself. It gave Peter a platform to share the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a famous saying that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I don't know whether he actually said it or not, but if he did, it was an idiotic statement to make. You've heard it a million times. Preach the gospel. When necessary, use words. What does that mean? That sounds so good. People say, yeah, that's what it means. You don't have to preach to people. You don't have to share the message. Just do good things to people and live a good life and somehow automatically by osmosis, they will come to know Jesus as Savior. That's ridiculous. First of all, none of us is good enough to lead somebody to Christ by the life we lead. We're just not. And even if somebody is attracted by the way we live our life and the good things we do, if we don't tell them why we're doing it, how are they supposed to know? They might attribute our good deeds to Confucius or Buddha or Mohammed or to our Aunt Ethel, who is our model. You know, how do they know who is responsible for the good things we're doing? No, if you're going to share the gospel, you have to use words. Paul said, faith comes by what? Hearing, not by seeing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Peter understood that. It wasn't enough to do a good deed. He had to give the reason behind what he did. And that's what he does when he delivers this message. And I want you to notice three things Peter does in this message. First of all, he declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verses 14 to 16. He said to these Jews, but you disown the holy righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. He was referring to what had just happened two months earlier when the people cried out for Barabbas instead of Jesus to be released. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus that has strengthened this man whom you see and know. First of all, he establishes to these Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. When he uses that phrase, holy and righteous one, that was an Old Testament term referring to the Messiah. It's one of six that Peter uses in his preaching. Notice also, he uh, points to both the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. You put him to death, the prince of life, but God raised him from the dead. Now listen to me. When you are sharing the gospel with somebody, the gospel message is not about your breaking an addiction in your life. It's not about a restored marriage that you've experienced. It's not about hearing the birds chirp every morning in a brand new way. None of that is the gospel. 
The gospel is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what the gospel is. He died for your sins according to the scriptures and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And any so-called message that isn't centered on the death and resurrection of Christ is a bogus message and will never lead anybody to the Savior. That's what we learned from Peter. He declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And by the way, it has to be the death and resurrection of Christ. As Warren Wiersbe said, Calvary was man's last word about Jesus, but the empty tomb was God's last word about Jesus. Secondly, what does Peter do after declaring Jesus is the Messiah? He explains the Jews' guilt before God. He explains the Jews' guilt before God. Look, You can't give somebody the good news until they embrace the bad news. And the bad news is we are all guilty before God. We are all sinners in need of a savior. You know, I have parents ask me all the time, how do I know when my child is ready to accept Christ as savior, to trust in him? You know they're ready when they understand sin, that they are sinners in need of a savior and that they understand what Jesus did for them. He died for their sins. They have to understand sin. They have to be broken and sorry for their sin. And they have to understand that Jesus is their savior. I'm gonna climb up on my soapbox for 30 seconds and just say this. Parents, whatever you do, don't talk to your kids about inviting Jesus into your heart. Honey, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart? That's like asking a kid, would you like to invite Santa Claus into your heart? I mean, what child wouldn't want to have Jesus living in them? That's not the gospel. Never once in the Bible is there an invitation to invite Jesus into your heart. The invitation in the gospel is to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And when a child understands that, he understands that he is ready to become a Christian. Peter was preaching before these Jews, and first of all, before he could deliver the good news, he had to deliver the bad news. They were guilty before God. In verses 13 and 14, he said to these Jews in that temple area, you cried out for Barabbas, a murderer, to be released. Instead, you wanted Jesus to be crucified. I heard a pastor this week, and he's a friend of mine, and he's a good preacher, He's known for his love of Israel, which is good. We ought to all love God's people. But he actually made the statement that the Jews had nothing to do with the death of Jesus Christ. That it is anti-Semitic to suggest that the Jews crucified Christ. Pardon me? (laughs) Peter was a Jew, and he said to these Jews he was talking to, You are the ones that nailed him to the cross. Yeah, it may have been the Roman centurion that drove the nails into his hands, but you're the ones who called for him to be crucified, crucified, crucified. No, the Jews were responsible. It wasn't just the Jewish leaders, it was the Jewish people who were out there calling for the Lord to be crucified. That doesn't mean we hate the Jews, we love for them, we pray for their salvation, we do everything we can to lead them to Christ. But the Jews could not be saved unless they first of all understood their guilt. It's interesting in verse 17 how Peter deals with it. He's diplomatic. He says, and now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did. You made a mistake. Perhaps you didn't understand that he was really the Messiah, 
But now that he has been raised from the dead, you are without excuse. That's exactly what he's saying in verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So what does he do as a result of this message? Notice the third component. Peter calls for repentance. Therefore, therefore, repent, change your mind, return so that your sins might be wiped away. There again is what the gospel is about, that your sins might be wiped away. That phrase wiped away is the same idea that David, King David expressed in the Psalms when he said, blot out my transgressions. In biblical times, papyrus, writing services were so expensive, you had to use it over and over again. You dared not write in an acid-based ink or it would take hold and it could never be erased. You would write in an acid-free ink so that when you're finished with the documents, you could take a sponge and you could wipe away what had been written on it. That is a picture of what the blood of Christ does for you and me. When God forgives us, he wipes away our sin. He erases it. He remembers it no more. The invitation is to have your sins wiped away, but it doesn't stop there. In order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. He goes on to say that he might send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. What is he talking about? The times of refreshing, the times of restoration. These are all references to the millennium. The thousand-year reign of Christ when God will fulfill his promise to believing Israel. You see, for Jews to come to faith in Christ, there was both a personal blessing. Their sins were washed away. But there was a national blessing that God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. That's what he was inviting them to do. How did the crowd react to Peter's bold message? We're going to see the reaction in Acts 4 next time. But today I want to close with two timeless truths that apply for us today. Truth number one, I want you to listen carefully because this is going to surprise some of you. Truth number one is the church's mission is to meet the spiritual needs of people. The mission of the church is not to heal everybody. It's not to feed everybody. It's not to clothe everybody. It is to meet the spiritual needs of people. You know, a lot of people don't understand that. They really view that the church is some sanctified social agency, that, oh, if there's a need in our community, if there's a need in our country, oh, the church ought to be right there doing it. You know, that's our job. We're a sanctified social agency. No, that's not what the church has been mandated to do. You know, Peter Drucker, many of you know his name. He was the management expert, American management expert. Many people don't know he was also a Christian. And I read an article he wrote one time about effective churches. And he said, for churches to be really effective for God, they have to learn to say no to certain good ministries that other people think they ought to be engaged in. And he used this illustration. He said, if you go to the American Lung Association, And you say to them, have you seen those frightening statistics that 97% of all Americans have ingrown toenails? What are you going to do about it? The American Lung Association will basically say to you, our interest in people stops above the neck and below the navel. We don't care about ingrown toenails. We don't care about anything except a person's lungs. That is our focus. 
Peter Drucker says, the church needs to be the same way. Many people feel like the church exists to take care of every problem, and it's terribly hard for them to say no. And yet, the effective churches are the ones that say no. Think about this. Every government agency, every social agency in America today is all focused, they're all focused on the same thing, taking care of the needs of people on this side of the grave. Only the church of Jesus Christ takes care of people's needs on the other side of the grave for all eternity. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he didn't say, go into all the world and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, provide shelter for the homeless. He said, go into all the world and what? Make disciples. How do you do it? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Evangelism. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. That's what the unique mission of the church is. Well, pastor, what about that passage in James? If you see a brother or sister in need and you don't answer their need, your uh, faith is worthless. That's exactly right. The key is a brother or sister, a fellow Christian. We have a great responsibility in our church to watch out for the needs of one another. And we'll see that illustrated in the book of Acts, the early church, if anybody had a need, their need was taken care of by other people in the church. But there is no mandate to take care of the physical needs of people. Uh, that's why Peter didn't spend the rest of the day healing people. Instead, he preached the gospel to people that would provide the ultimate healing they need. Second truth I see in this passage is all healing ultimately comes from God. Peter's was very clear in his message. He said, this didn't come from me. It came from the name, the authority of Jesus. Does God heal people today? You bet he does. Sometimes God heals directly. He just heals. Some of you have experienced that before. Sometimes God uses doctors and he uses medicine to bring about healing. You say, no, where do you get that in the Bible? I'm so glad you asked. Isaiah 38, King Hezekiah was given the message that he was going to die soon and he needed to get his affairs together. And so he cried out to God for healing. God granted him an extra 15 years. But how did God provide that healing? He did it through Isaiah, Isaiah 38, 21. And Isaiah had said, let them take a lump of figs and lay it on for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. The figs and the plaster were the best medicine they had then to take care of the problem. But God used it to extend 15 more years to Hezekiah's life. I mean, he eventually died, but he got 15 years more of life. When you come to James chapter 5, verse 14, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. James said, is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And when you look at that verse in the Greek language, it actually is a participial phrase that could be translated this um, way. Call for the elders of the church let them pray, and having anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus, let them pray. Having already anointed him, 
let them pray. In other words, that phrase anointing is a subservient phrase to the main verb pray. In James' day, oil was a medicinal agent. It was thought to bring healing. What James is saying is, if you have somebody who is sick, yes, go to the doctor. Yes, use chemotherapy. Use whatever you have at your disposal. Do that, of course. But the most important thing you can do, having done that already, is to pray. That's what the Word of God says. How are we to respond when we face illness? or somebody we know faces illness, first of all, we are to pray. Pray. Secondly, we could and should seek the best medical care available. Whatever God has provided for us, let's take advantage of that. Pray, go to the doctor, seek healing, and thirdly, leave the results to God. That's the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is saying, God, this is what I'm praying for. This is what I want, but I believe you know what is best. Boldly pray, quietly rest in God's answer. Sometimes God says yes to our request for healing. He does it just like that. You know, be honest with you, I don't ever get that excited about stories I hear about people's healing because I know however miraculous it was, it was also temporary just like Hezekiah's. We're all going to get sick and die unless the rapture comes first. All healing is temporary until we experience the ultimate healing. But sometimes, yes, God says yes. He extends our life. He provides additional time on this earth. Sometimes, God says no. He said no to both of my parents who requested healing and were anointed with oil and prayed, but God said no. And he says no to others as well. I think about the pastor of this church for 50 years, Dr. George W. Truitt. Many of you know that in the last year of his life, he was in horrific, excruciating pain, and he was allergic to all uh, painkillers. So he had no assistance from painkillers. He was in terrible pain, and members of the church wondered, Why would God allow a godly servant like Dr. Truett to get sick to begin with and then to go through such horrific suffering? And Dr. Truett used to comfort this congregation by saying, especially during the last year of his life, not my will, but thine be done. That's what every Christian can rest in. God hears us, but he knows what's best. As he said to the Apostle Paul, who asked three times for healing, when Paul begged God to heal him, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul concluded, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Maybe you or someone you love is going through a season of suffering right now. I pray that God uses this study in Acts to heighten your confidence in His purpose. Paul said it best, in our weakness, God makes us strong. It's our mission at Pathway to Victory to empower Christians across our nation and our world. And it's one of the reasons we established the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. This is a limited time arrangement by which you can multiply your giving. 
Plus, to say thanks for your generous gift today, I'm going to send you my brand new book called Unstoppable Power. By reading my book, you'll become equipped to face whatever challenges our culture throws at you. And I can't think of a more important time to bulk up than right now. Christ followers are under attack these days. Pundits and comedians have made a mockery of the values we hold dear. Gratefully, God has empowered us for such a time as this. My book, Unstoppable Power, based on the book of Acts, will strengthen your spiritual muscles and prepare you for the resistance. In closing, let me speak to the urgency of your generous gift. The times in which we live carry an urgency all their own. But it's not only that. Pathway to Victory bears the expense of astounding growth and impact. All to say, your partnership is critically important as we move forward in these dark and demanding days. So, thanks for reaching out with your generous gift to the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffers. When you give a generous gift to Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Jeffers called Unstoppable Power. You can give online at ptv.org or call 866-999-2965. And when you give $100 or more, you'll also receive the complete collection of audio and video discs for this month's teaching series, Unstoppable Power. And because of our Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge, any gift you give will be doubled in impact, meaning there's never been a better time to give to Pathway to Victory. One more time, our phone number, 866-999-2965, or go online to ptv.org. You could send your request by mail. Here's the address, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. You know, persecution is on the rise, not only around the world, but in America as well. So how should we respond when persecution comes? Dr. Jeffress answers that pressing question next time on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.